Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. And today I am so excited because I'm speaking with somebody that I know pretty well. I was at his wedding. He was at my wedding. He is married to one of my dearest friends. So today I am speaking with Zach Heron. Zach is a graduate of Texas A&M and has his MA in counseling from Denver Seminary. He is a licensed professional counselor supervisor and has been in many counseling roles in various capacities since 2004. He has been working as a licensed professional counselor since 2011. Zach has worked with families, addicts, teens, premarital, married couples, individuals and children all have a wide variety of issues and disorders. Zach believes in the power of change and has seen God bring about great change in his own life and the lives of those he's influenced. He believes therapy and the counseling relationship is one of the most powerful methods for change and has seen it work in numerous people's lives. Zach is an LPCS is NBCC certified, Prepare Enrich certified, EMDR trained, a member of Texas VOW and Together program. And today we are specifically going to break down trauma. So thank you, Zach, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad I get to be here and talk with you about it. So yeah, this is exciting. You know, we were talking, we were in California, like, what was that, about a year and a half ago? And I remember on our long hiking trip, we kind of started talking a little bit about trauma, body keeps the score type of stuff. And yeah. I know it is something that you are so passionate about. So before we even get into our official questions, maybe it'd be good just to tell people, what is it about trauma that that it's so needed for people to understand how to break through it and how to heal from it yeah i think i think that um just after looking at trauma every day um you know for the past you know 10 11 years seeing people come in for various capacities and you know or various reasons in counseling um there always seems to be this underlying role of trauma in their life. I think a lot of times that we don't even realize that it's playing, you know, having an impact on what we do and what we say. And um, there's different levels of trauma. I think a lot of times when we think of trauma, we think of, you know, the acute trauma where it's just this huge event that happens. And I've had crazy things happen to me and Aaron, you know, those stories, you know, that kind of stuff. And you know, where acute trauma is like an accident. It's like a natural disaster. It's like a one-time event that they call it in PTSD. It's like the huge, it's the big T traumas that, you know, leave a huge impact. And, you know, when we think of trauma, that's what we usually think about. But there's also, for a lot of clients, I see this idea of like kind of chronic trauma, which is this ongoing, um, whether that's in, you know, disruptive relationships, maybe that's been abuse, um, the statistics on, on abuse, you know, as far as childhood abuse and all that kind of stuff are just staggering. Um, and so those things, you know, have an impact of, on, you know, of trauma on people as well. And I think really understanding like what trauma is, is it basically is a, it trauma reproduces a recalibration of the brain's alarm system. 
and an increase in stress hormone activity. And so basically it compromises the brain's area that communicates physical embodied feelings of being alive. And so that's by a guy named uh, Mr. Vander Kolk. And he's saying basically it's like, there's, you know, this inability to, to really like help, you know, to, to calibrate things, you know, when trauma is, you know, introduced severe trauma, I was reading about it, emotional trauma, especially can, it causes uh, lasting changes in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex region of the brain, which is responsible for regulating emotions and responses triggered by the amygdala. So a lot of times people coming in with anxiety, um, they have a, a oversensitive, you know, amygdala fight or flight um, response. Um, a lot of times that's what trauma does. And so when people come in presenting, um, you know, with anxiety or depression, a lot of times there's a huge component of trauma that's involved with that. And so I think it's important, you know, whether you're um, a clinician or if you're just dealing with, you know, just mental health, like um, what's the role of trauma in the way I'm feeling and why I'm feeling that way. So. Yeah, that's so good. And I, I love how you talk about the, how it shows up in the brain. I don't know if you ever uh, follow Dr. Daniel Amen, but he's somebody that I just, I think he's amazing because he does those brain spect scans, I think is what they're called. And he says that trauma makes like a diamond pattern in the brain. So it just kind of lights up differently. And if people can even understand just how it's like, like you were saying, how it's wiring and firing the brain differently all because of this trauma. And it could be that, well, and maybe that's a question to ask you, are there people who don't recognize their trauma for being trauma? I think a lot of times, yeah, I see clients that come in and, you know, when we're going through uh, history, client history and that kind of stuff, a lot of times they kind of downplay, you know, well, mom was a little bit controlling, right. Or dad, you know, just raised his voice. And um, I think a lot of times, like you said, we don't realize that, you know, the, the neighbor, neighborhood kid who touched me in an inappropriate place or whatever that is, it's like that it's traumatic. It, it literally, like you said, rewires the brain and kids, especially, and, and you know this, and y'all have talked, I've heard multiple times with people of how kids are develop emotional responses that their brain, um, we're, we're constantly adapting and trying to regulate self-regulate, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, basically survive. And so the brain is constantly doing things that, you know, as, as you're going through it and you're trying to figure things out, you're, you're trying to downplay, minimize, you know, you're trying to make excuses. You're trying to emotionally regulate the other person's, you know, emotions. And so at the end of it, to answer your question, a lot of times we don't realize that what we actually experienced was traumatic to us. It had an impact on us um, in ways we have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and even, those adverse childhood events, adverse childhood experiences, I can never remember which one it is, the ACE study, you know, how it shows that the more you have, the more adverse experiences you have as a child, the more you're predisposed to all sorts of physical illnesses later on in life. And it's because of the way our body stores trauma. Like that's, it's just crazy. And so I think it's so important to go see somebody like you, to see a counselor, because that's when you can really uncover Hey, what I experienced, maybe it was normal for me, but it's probably not something that, that many people would consider normal. And it probably affected me on some deep level that I've never even dealt with before. And that's where counseling is so powerful, right? Because so many people get those aha moments of, oh, huh, 
that isn't a normal parenting relationship that I had or whatever, right? Yeah, I reflect that back to you is incredibly powerful and, you know, has a big, big impact on how you move forward and processing that trauma. And um, I think one of the other things, and we'd asked, we'd talked about, you know, is that how, how closely associated trauma and grief are related. And I really think that that's the other thing I see is that when, um, people are dealing with trauma or come in with presenting with grief, there's usually an underlying level of trauma there. And so I think with um, grief is basically, I uh, heard a really good definition. It's accepting my new normal. And, you know, there's a loss that happens in my lifetime. And um, when that loss happens, I have to basically recalibrate my entire existence to that loss. Now, what's my new normal? I need to move forward in a way that my life is now different. And I think that that in a sense is basically what trauma does is it creates this huge loss in my life. And I might not recognize it like we had said, but I start going through this process of grief. And a lot of times when clients come in, they don't even realize one that I'm grieving or two that's related to my trauma. And so helping them just to recognize that and see, Hey, wait a second, this, the grief that I'm having is in a sense, it's related to my trauma, but it grief itself is also could be traumatic if I don't do it well. And if I'm not working through it and, um, you know, doing that, doing, doing what needs, you know, give myself the space and time and permission to grieve well. So, yeah. And so if somebody is experiencing grief and trauma and they are so closely linked, like what do you deal with first, the grief or the trauma or both? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I think they're so interlinked. I think they, that they naturally um, present in the, in the way that they need to be healed. I think that's what's so cool about, you know, the way we're designed and, and as human beings that um, we probably know ourselves better than we realize. And so um, as we're going through it and, you know, we, we kind of naturally um, grieve as we're working through our trauma and, you know, it's, it's not, I think it's a both and I don't think it's a, you know, first, first or before it's just like, Hey, it's, it kind of takes care of itself. And as we're dealing with, both of them, it, it, it tends to work itself out, which is really cool to see how people can do that. So, so, which makes me wonder what about 2020 is 22 is 2020 going to be both a grief and a trauma for people in, in different ways? I, I think so. And it, to me, it's been like incredible to see the amount of people coming in um, yesterday. I had a client come in and he just started telling me all the losses that he mm. had. And um, it wasn't just the loss of the quarantine. It wasn't just the loss of, you know, normalcy as we know it. But then he started telling me of traumatic, like, and then my friend who um, died and my grandma who died and my, like, it's just like, it just seems like it's just a culmination of all these things. And I think to some degree, because we're in it and we're in this constant state of grief, like when those things that normally wouldn't traumatize us, you know, necessarily they come and hit us, like these things are, they're huge and they impact us on a, in a, in a maybe more of a traumatic level than they would have before. And really, honestly, my, my concern this year has been more for mental health than physical health. I feel like that, that the extent that we've, you know, the coronavirus has impacted us, is not necessarily um, on the physical side as much as it has been on the mental health side. And that I'm, we're seeing that in droves as people are coming in and dealing with, the anxiety around it, the grief around it, even the trauma and, you know, just the social and political, you know, climate right now, there's, there's so much that's going on. Yeah. We're trying to deal with and reconcile. 
with no end in sight. And I think for people that already struggle with mental health issues, that makes it worse. And for those who have never struggled, really, that's going to kick in a lot of anxiety. So yeah, that's crazy. Well, let's get into this whole topic of EMDR, because that's really <laughs> why I wanted to have you on here. But I know we needed to have the background of trauma to understand. Um, you are trained in EMDR. You help people with EMDR, I guess is the way you would say it. What even is it? What's the history behind it? Who can benefit from it? Tell us all the good stuff about EMDR. Yeah, so EMDR, as I, as I started noticing that um, people, you know, like I said, the underlying root and kind of what's going on is trauma, you know, looking into methods of counseling that help with this trauma. Uh, one of the ones that started sticking out recently and is becoming more noticed, and I think it's kind of becoming a buzzword now, is this idea of EMDR. And what EMDR stands for is it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And so it's a form of therapy and the lady named um, Francine Shapiro um, created in the, in the late eighties. And it was just her trying to understand a, another way of processing trauma. And it's interesting how she came across it. And they said like her story and as you read her book and all that kind of thing, she's basically walking through a park and has this real big level and high level of anxiety. And she just starts moving her eyes back and forth. And, and she says that she's walking all of a sudden she realized that her anxiety level has gone down and she's like, huh, I wonder there's, there's something to that. So she started developing um, what we call now is EMDR. And so um, basically the core of EMDR uh, treatment um, involves activating components of the traumatic memory or disturbing life event. And then it's pairing those components with alternating bilateral and dual attention stimulation. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but this process appears to facilitate the resumption of normal information processing and integration. Um, so this treatment approach can result in alleviation of presenting symptoms, um, the diminution of distress from a memory, improved view of self, um, relief from bodily disturbance, uh, resolution of present and future anticipated triggers. And so, uh, I know that's a lot, but basically it's um, one of the best ways that I've, I've kind of um, described it to clients um, is you're, you're doing it in an awake state, what you would naturally do in a sleep state. And so um, I, I, talking about the stages of sleep, um, you have four stages and you go through, you know, stage four, which is a deeper sleep stage, you know, as you're coming out, you're going to what we call REM sleep. And um, REM sleep is basically you're, you're, you watch, you know, dogs or kids or something like that. And their eyes are blinking real fast. And so basically it's their, their, your eyes are going across the bilateral plane of right brain and left brain. And that's what the whole theory or part of the theory of EMDR is that what you're doing in an awake state, um, or in a sleep state, you're doing it in an awake state. And so, um, as you're, if you go and talk to somebody who's doing EMDR, they have what's called the bilateral stimulation, which is they'll have you follow their fingers or they have tappers or light bars. And basically all you're doing is your eyes are going back and forth across left brain, right brain. And so the theory is, is as you do that, um, it actually, um, helps your brain recover from those traumatic events. It helps your brain kind of like move things forward. So very, it's very interesting just the way it works as well. So do you have to be talking about that event or something that triggered you during the time that your eyes are being moved back and forth? 
So here's something that's really interesting about EMDR um, that I think um, when I was going through the training, a psychologist was in the training with me and um, the way he described it um, was basically there's different forms of memory. And so he says we have a cognitive memory, which is basically a thought. So when you have an event, there's a thought that's associated with it. Um, when you have uh, there's also an emotional memory. So your emotion, there's emotion that's tied to the event. Um, he said there's body memory, which is basically like you have this, um, you know, you know, if you think about muscle memory, you walk into a room and you can flip on a light switch. You remember where that muscle, you know, you remember where it is. And then he said the lowest or, um, you know, basic uh, state of memory is what's called state memory, which is basically just an image. And so most therapies, so cognitive behavioral therapy, RBT, all that kind of stuff, it goes through from top down, I meaning it goes, it starts with the thinking and the emotions and rarely ever does it get down to the body sensation and the state memory. And so what he's saying is that the, with EMDR, it actually works in the opposite where you start with an image and then you figure out where is that located in my body and then the emotion associated with it. And then what's the thought process that's behind it. So you go from the opposite way. And so to answer your question, the first part of that process is you kind of do a history. So they, they call it the eight phases of EMDR. So you start with the client history, but then when you're doing your initial assessment, that's what you do is you start with the image. How does that, where's that located in my body? What am I thinking? How am I feeling about it? What's the negative cognition that I have towards it? What's the positive cognition that I'd like to have towards it? And all you do, it's pretty crazy, Aaron, because all you do is you, as, as you're processing it, you just say like the, the very next thing you see, we'll talk more about it, but there's not a lot of talking involved. So guys really like it. So it's very like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not something like your typical talk therapy. You start with that initial assessment, you do a bilateral stimulation, and basically you just report kind of what comes to mind. And what it's doing is your brain is naturally healing itself. It's making associations is kind of helping that state memory kind of move forward. It's really, really interesting how it happens. So, wow. So you really are rewiring the brain with how it, it is dealing with or categorizing or processing these horrible things. Yeah. So basically the way I, I like to describe it or a good explanation I've heard of um, grief and trauma is basically it's like, if you think about your desktop on your computer, if you have those little icons on the top, you know, you can be doing, you know, you can be surfing the internet, you can be doing all kinds of other things, but you're always reminded of those, you know, those icons on there. It's something that I have to do kind of same thing. The reason they call it desktop is like your desk. But if you're going through any kind of counseling, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR, the point is what you want to do is you want to take those, basically those icons, open them up, and kind of process them and figure out how do they fit in my life? Where do they go? And so that's when I can open up like my finder, my computer and create a file for it. So the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy is it's a lot of talking. You're writing the story multiple times. Um, you're, you know, describing it. Um, and that does it, it over time. It helps your brain um, process and put it where it needs to go with EMDR. It's fascinating because there's not a lot of talking. Um, kind of like we talked about with the state memory, all you're doing is you're focusing on the image, um, the emotion tied to it and where it's located in my body and your brain is doing naturally what it wants to do is like heal and process. And so that's what's pretty cool about EMDR is it, it's not a lot of talk. I know you'd ask that. Um, there's not a lot. Um, it's just basically reporting what your brain is, um, is processing. 
Yeah. And I love the example of, of the computer and the desktop background. I think that is a perfect analogy because I have been mentioning this to other people recently. I feel like this year that has been my brain is that I have so many files open to the extent where even like my actual computer, <laughs> Richard was looking at it the other day and he's like, I don't know how you can stand to have so many files open. And I was like, uh, you should take a peek inside my brain because I feel like that is always, and that's why I love counseling is because it helps me to sort and to categorize. And this is why I think it's always important to have a, to see a counselor, even if you don't have like some glaring issue that you need to work through, but we all need help categorizing and sorting and dealing with whatever is open <laughs> in our brain. And so I think that's really interesting. I think that that's a good, so EMDR you would say is good for somebody well, who is it good for? Maybe I'll just start there. Who, what kind of a person is, is a good candidate for EMDR? I think honestly, everybody could benefit from it. Um, I think that there is, it's some, some therapists specialize in EMDR and they solely do EMDR. And I think that's helpful, but I think there's some, some uh, benefit to having talk therapy as well. Um, so a lot of times the way we'll do it in our, our office at Solace uh, Counseling is that we will kind of talk to the person, figure out where they're at, and then um, do a couple of sessions with EMDR with them and just see how it works, um, kind of see how they, um, how, how they react to it. And I, I think every person can benefit from it. The good thing, it's a great tool where we get to a point where maybe we're stuck in the processing and we really just like can't move forward. And EMDR is a great tool just to help the climb move forward. And it's really good for us because it, it helps with the therapeutic process. Yeah. And it, I think that that you made an important point there about it being just another good tool to use. And I think it's so beneficial to have lots of tools when we're talking about being functioning humans, right? Like we need all the tools, all the support because life is hard and lots of things happen um, with that. So do you, what's your method? Do you do like, do you use a light? Do you use, I know you mentioned before there are different ways that you can do it. How do you like, imagine I was just going to sit down in front of you now and we were going to do EMDR. What is your process, your method? And is it the same for everyone or is it different? It's kind of, it's, it's kind of standard to begin with. Like what you do is, so the eye movement, like we talked about before is the bilateral stimulation. You're crossing the lobes of the brain and you're activating, you know, the kind of, um, memory that's been stored and you're bringing it up to working memory. And so usually the typical way is you start out by um, having somebody follow your fingers. So it's not hypnotism, but same idea. You're going mm -hmm. back and forth. And so you uh, make sure that the client is comfortable with the position you're in, the distance you're at. And basically when you're processing, you're doing pretty rapid uh, eye movements back and forth when you're processing the trauma. Um, a lot of clients, if clients don't respond to that, we have what's called tappers, which are basically, um, just little buzzers that you put in the palm of your hand and it does the same thing. It, it stimulates the, um, the, you know, the bilateral stimulation. Um, sometimes you can even tap on the top of somebody's knees. Um, if they're comfortable with that, um, there are light bars where we've had, um, some other practitioners that use those and it, it basically, it's accomplishing the same thing. You're trying to make sure that the person's getting a full bilateral motion. So they're looking completely from left to right and right to left. So that's, that's the point of it. So the typical method to answer your question is just by following someone, following your therapist's fingers. So back and forth. 
Okay. That's so interesting. I mean, that's just, I've never done it. And so the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, I think I need to try this out. It's so cool. Um, and I, I would love to hear like, how soon do people notice a difference after they start this whole EMDR process? Like how many sessions does it take for you to feel less triggered or anxious or whatever? I think I've, I've had several of my clients uh, report like pretty much immediately. Um, the point of the, the, the sensitization is what you're doing is you're taking the trauma and like I said, allowing your brain to move it forward. So it doesn't carry as much weight as it used to. Basically it's processing, it's bringing it to the forefront, to the working memory. And then you're, you're allowing the brain to actually process. I've had clients at the end of a session um, say that was great. I feel so much better. Like I, I, I feel like a weight's lifted off. Um, and like I said, when we talked about the bottom up is you're working from the state body uh, motions that the, the way the memory stored is that it's, it's fascinating because they actually feel a relief in their body as well, because we talked about that. Your body kind of keeps the score. There's a great book um, that talks about that, where the body stores our trauma. Um, I had one client, I know it's maybe too much information, but she was processing her trauma and her husband had been um, in a hospital situation and she it was very traumatic for her and she remembered like I really have to go to the restroom I didn't even remember that part about that trauma but but just by doing EMDR it brought all the feelings up and she was able to move forward with it so um, what's really cool is it's pretty pretty immediate results Um, there is some kind of like leftover you know I don't know we call it kind of residue or something uh, afterwards, but still like, um, just the immediate, um, desensitization and reprocessing where tie, tying new meaning to that same trauma, um, has pretty immediate results, which a lot of clients really like. So. I love that. So tell me, because I really am wanting to know just even for my own, I get stuck in not fight or flight. I get stuck in freeze a lot. So would this be something to where, because anytime, and I've shared my story plenty of times on this podcast before, but because I witnessed my grandpa dying when I was nine, I remember being in front of the window and watching and being completely frozen, could not move, disassociating, you know, all those things that we do to where now Anytime anything happens, like say my son gets a bloody nose or something else happens with a kid, I completely freeze up for a few seconds and I can't spring into action like most people can. And it's really frustrating for me because I would like to be a helpful person, but I always feel like cemented to the ground (laughs) stuck. And I do think that's the after effects of trauma. Would something like EMDR be helpful to get me out of that? I think absolutely because you're what you're doing, like it says, reprocessing the, the time that I um, did it when we were, we were training and um, they did um, processing, processing with me. It was wild because um, my grandma, when I was third grade, committed suicide. And so that's mm-hmm. a big, big deal. Gosh. But I remember the whole process of my mom coming out. We were in a tree for kind of going through this whole thing. And I remember the same thing, just feeling very stuck, feeling very frozen very you know and even like you said in like future you know future situations that were very difficult it felt very stuck and as I processed it and as I went through it it was wild because it's almost like a video and I was playing out my childhood memories and I ended up in my childhood kitchen and where it was dark in my memories all of a sudden light was pouring in and I felt like this huge relief I felt like just the whole situation kind of took on a new turn for me 
I feel like I was able to kind of process to move forward a little bit more, like you said, and even helping clients that are dealing with suicide, I feel like, or suicidal thoughts or people who have passed away from that. Um, I feel like that really helped me just process mm -hmm. my own stuff. But like, like you said, it just, it helps just kind of move it forward. My brain is just, you know, kind of helping, you know, get it going. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. I just, and even just that whole, the way that something when we're so young can continue to affect us. I read somewhere recently, um, somebody referred to those early childhood years, like from zero to seven, zero to eight, whatever, as, as trance years, how we are just kind of observing everything in this trance-like state, like just taking it all in. We're not analyzing, we're not judging, we're not evaluating. It's just the world is what it is. And so how many people have experienced the world during those early formative years in ways that are probably not healthy, <laughs> you know, or something really traumatic happened to where they never process the fact that, Hey, that wasn't actually a typical childhood. And so something like this could help somebody walk through that. And like you said, release that, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That and just regular counseling too, just being able to talk through it. And like we talked about before, just say, mm -hmm. hey, that's not normal. Like that's not yeah. a, you know, that's, it's very helpful, but yeah, EMDR definitely, like I said, those areas that we're stuck really can help, you know, move it forward. And uh, yeah, developmentally it's wild because you're just a sponge, you know, like you said, one through seven. And then as you're, as you're growing older and you become a teenager, then you're actually developing, um, you know, myelin sheath and all that kind of stuff. So you're making the, the connections a lot faster um, in your brain and, and the things that you emphasize and the things that you, um, you know, spend your time on is what your brain says is important. And I think that's as parents, it's really important to understand that as well. Um, kind of on that note too, is that I have several colleagues and I've done it a few times where EMDR, EMDR is actually helpful for kids as well, which mm. we use uh, some techniques in play therapy and drawing and that kind of stuff where we, you know, have the kid draw the traumatic, you know, picture or memory in his mind. And we'll do some tapping on their shoulders, like the bilateral stimulation and we'll have them work through it and basically like draw stages of pictures. That's one form. There's other things too, just going through play where um, we include that bilateral stimulation. It's, and it's really cool just to see even kids can benefit from it. They actually are able to process like difficult situations as well. So it's, like I said, it's pretty, pretty all inclusive and, and that's how they try to advertise it. And it really does. They're trying to, um, you know, develop protocols and, and things to help with other things like anxiety and, um, you know, illness, depression, depression, and eating disorders, you're trying to develop things that EMDR can help as well. So that's neat. I, you know, and what would you say to somebody, because I've heard this before, um, and it really kind of bothered me just because of my own knowledge of, of how trauma has shown up in my own life. I heard one person say that EMDR is not useful for your average everyday person. It's really only for like war veterans or people who have experienced real trauma. What do you say to that? I, I think it goes back to our idea of trauma and grief is that it's just getting used to a new normal. Um, I think we've talked about too, just um, as far as trauma defined they have like you know we talked about um with ptsd there's the big traumas where you know like i said the war veterans the um, major you know um natural disasters that kind of stuff but there's also the the small t's which are little traumas which is everyday things and and um, i think it's interesting doing a lot of genetic studies as to how people are processing 
Um, like some people can go through the same situation and walk away with a completely different reaction. Some soldiers can see the same thing happen and one walks away with PTSD and the other one doesn't. So um, I don't think that it, I don't think the, the degree of trauma as far as like, I guess by the way we define it, like would limit somebody from doing EMDR. And like I said, it's, it's too, it's um, based on the subject interpretation, subjective interpretation of the person experiencing the trauma. So I think that's really important. Um, so I don't think it discount anybody from doing it. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's, it were, I've had a client come in and, and he went to a private school and he was telling me, he's like, Oh my gosh, this girl is so mad because she got a BMW instead of a Maserati, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just kind of had to swallow a little bit and he was just, you know, and I was like, well, you know, that could be traumatic to her. You know, that's, that's just a, you know, that's just the thing. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, you know, maybe make sense to, you know, people can't afford a Maserati or BMW, but to this girl, it was a, you know, a challenging, I don't know if trauma would be the right word, but it was a, you know, difficult situation for her. So. Yeah. Well, you know, there's enough shame. We carry enough shame that I, I think that to feel shame about if our trauma is really trauma or not, like that's a heavy weight to carry as well. Like nobody needs to be burdened with wondering was my trauma traumatic enough to really be, I mean, it's subjective, like you said, and it's, and it is really experiential to that person and to what they, I don't know. I just think, I think if you can get help and if you can find something that works for you, that's amazing. And so if, so say somebody does experience something and they know like, okay, I'm struggling dealing with this. Like maybe it's a death, maybe it's the year 2020, as we talked about, maybe it's, um, something, you know, an issue with a child, whatever. Um, how soon after they experience the event, can they get started with EMDR? Is there like a, an optimal time? Is there a wait or can it be any time? It can be, it can be any time. Like I, I recently had a client that told me something and it happened in his childhood and it's, you know, post 20 years. And so he's benefiting from EMDR. We had a recent situation, Tyler, with a tragic loss of, you know, a pretty prominent community person. And um, several clients came in and, and they were able to benefit like immediately after. Mm. And actually I, I feel like it could actually help them process, you know, that they've been able to process it more effectively mm. doing it quickly after the event. But like you said, there's just with the shame, there's no right or wrong time, you know, to do it. It's just, you know, it can benefit like immediately after, or it can benefit, like I said, 20 years down the road. And, um, I, I would encourage people to do it sooner than later, of course, um, just if, if it's something that's big, just so I don't have to carry the weight of that. And like you said, carry the shame and the guilt of, um, of the, the traumatic event. So, yeah. And can people do these things virtually? Can you do that through FaceTime or do you have to be in person face to face? I think it's, it's more effective face to face, but yeah, we're, Again, as everybody's figuring out with this whole uh, pandemic, we're adapting like, you know, and, and uh, you know, some clients will actually, you know, be able to follow um, their therapist, you know, you know, fingers across the screen, you know, that kind of thing. Or some people have like these uh, kind of a one thing where it's just basically all you're trying to do is accomplish um, the bilateral stimulation. I think being in person is more beneficial because the therapist can kind of read um, the person a little better, like if they're, if they're having, it's hard to see over screen, if they're having a, a real visceral reaction, um, it's hard to see that versus in person, you can really see it and you can say, okay, wait, it's time to, 
it's time to kind of, you know, pull the plug or, you know, slow down or let's move to what they call a calm place, safe place. Um, so that's kind of um, part of beneficial. If you can do it in person, I'd encourage to do it in person. So. Yeah. Can it be overstimulating? You brought up a um, interesting thought there, like to, to the point where it triggers too much for a person and they have to like put a stop to it. I think so what, what you start to find is and in a good way that they describe it is if you think about your like so with MDR, it's an eight state eight phase protocol. Um, and so just before you ever get started, they'll take, you know, the therapist will take your history. Um, they'll come up with a treatment plan. They'll kind of do preparation, kind of like what I was talking about. We'll, we'll kind of figure out like what's the safe place, calm place. So this person, if we do hit something that's really traumatic, you know, we can go to that. Then you do the desensitization, which is like we go through and work on the trauma. And that's where, like you said, with the desensitization, that's where you start to find the complex trauma. And so if you think about and the best way I've heard it described is if you think about your hand and you have um, like the main traumas right here, you have little branches that go out or they call them nodes that go out. And so you start with the main trauma and you have basically it's called a sud. So it's basically the disturbance level that I have and it's on a scale of zero to 10. And so if it's a 10, what you do is you're kind of going down these, each one of these little pathways and you're kind of clearing those out and you're coming back to the main trauma as you go through. And as you come back and that actual, the disturbance level of that um, starts to diminish. And so what happens is, is as you're going through that and maybe you hit some complex trauma, what you find is you're actually entering into like another, basically another hand. So basically you're actually, you've entered into another, like where those nodes start to cross um, with another trauma. And so at that point um, you do kind of slow down and you try to, you know, help the client navigate and go back to the, the trauma that you're processing. And then, you know, you, you kind of encourage them, Hey, next time you come in, let's, let's work on this other trauma. Let's work on that image. And so even during the week, we've had a lot of clients that report, you know, as I'm, as I've processed that other things have come up. And so all we do is just tell them and the famous word or kind of statement um, with EMDR is just notice it. So you don't have to make anything of it. You don't have to do anything with it. You just notice it. So we encourage clients to write that trauma down, notice it and, I'll just take it to the therapist when I'm, when I'm ready to process it. So um, that's kind of, so that's kind of how, I don't know if that makes sense as far as yeah. the trauma, but that's when you're getting desensitization, that's where you kind of enter into some like complex trauma. And so um, after that, after desensitization, you go into what's called installation. So you're replacing negative cognition with a positive cognition, which is really cool to see mm -hmm. that once that, that trauma has been desensitized, now we're attaching new meaning to it. We're, we're, I thought I was weak or powerless um, through the EMDR. I can attach meaning to that image where now I'm, hey, I'm powerful, I'm strong, I have, I'm capable, those kinds of things. And the brain actually starts to attach that. So that's called what we call the installation um, phase where we put that, put that new meaning to that image. And like I said, with my processing, that traumatic event with my grandma or finding out my grandma had done what she'd done, um, the new, um, the new meaning was like, I'm okay. Like I'm safe. Like I'm, I'm okay where I was. And now every time it's wild, I think of that image. That's what comes to mind. That uh -huh. installation of that new belief, that new, uh, cognition comes with that every time I process or every time I think about it. And then you kind of do after the installation a body scan where you go through, Hey, where's it disturbing? And it's wild after they process a lot of times at the beginning they have 
a lot of stress and specific, uh, we carry our stress in different areas. Some people carry a lot of stress, you know, in certain areas, like I said, the one client who had, um, memories of where it was affecting her body that she didn't even remember. Um, by the end of it, they scan their body and more often than not, they don't have the, the disturbance is gone, which is really cool. And you kind of close and then you reevaluate, Hey, this is what we've done. This is where we've been, that kind of thing. So. Wow. That is, I mean, if I have ever been convinced that I need EMDR, the time is now. <laughs> I mean, I, cause I have, I've thought about it quite a bit over just recent years and some things that have popped up for me that I'm like, I don't think I've dealt with that issue. I mean, I, and again, and I see a counselor every month and I talk, I talk through things, but I think what you just said there, the um, reframing and to be able to look at a situation and go, no, I'm safe or, or whatever, what, you know, depending on the situation, whatever it is, like, I think that that's really powerful. I don't think most people can get there with traditional talk therapy. Um, mm. Maybe they can, but our subconscious is crazy. And mm. we, and, and again, just the way we store things in our body. And I think you mentioned earlier, um, and this would be, we don't have time for, but it would be an interesting topic. I know you mentioned about eating disorders, issues with food. I think it's really interesting how um, there are many people that have issues with coping with emotional eating or binging or whatever it is. But a lot of times that's just an attempt to cope with trauma, something that's happened to them. And I wonder how much of our, even our inability to lose weight, the way that we store stress in our body can be impacted by the way that we're storing our trauma in our body. And I, that's something I definitely, I mean, after our conversation, I'm going to go look into, cause I know that there are people that are kind of starting to work on this, but it's, it's fascinating. I mean, just the whole body effects of what happens when our brain can't categorize something that's crazy to me. Yeah, it's a, definitely a trickle down effect for sure. And it, it, it starts interfering with a lot of other things, just not only just that situation, but like you said, yeah, it starts interfering with my coping and interferes with, um, you know, everything that I do. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's wild. That body keeps the scores a really good book just that talks about that. So, yeah, I'll make sure and list that in the show notes. Are there any other books or resources that you think would be helpful for people who are listening to this and going, Oh, I, I have some stuff I need to deal with. I think, I mean, I mean, even just, you, you can Google, I know it sounds bad, Google EMDR, there's tons, I, there's not anything specific that comes to mind, I think just kind of a general, um, I mean, the lady who wrote it, Shapiro, has this huge, like, almost like, I mean, 800 page book that you have to go through for training just to, you know, understand it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend that to everybody, but just, I would, I, I think you could get a pretty good overview of, of what that, you know, what EMDR is offering, so um yeah, the, the trauma. Um, there's another one I'm trying to remember of the name. It's something about tigers. I can't remember. That's horrible. Yes, but. I know what you're <laughs> talking about too. I, yeah, Google trauma and tiger. Yeah, yeah. I, I know it is. I've It'll heard of that. Up, but yeah, it's it's definitely, it's a great book. It just talks about, you know, how we try to cope with it in effect, you know, and, and you know, deal with the trauma and stuff. So yeah, anyway, but I'll, I'll email you a list and you can attach that to Attach that to the notes on your podcast and of just books that I recommend and my colleagues recommend and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think this is something that, that is worth exploring that 
And again, just going back to for, for people to understand, because this is something that's really been transformative for me, just for even talking about gut health, right? Like our thoughts are chemical messengers. They are sending chemical messengers to our cells, to everything that happens in our bodies. And so when our thoughts are stuck, when we're in fight or flight, that is shutting down digestion. That is shutting down reproductive function. That is shutting down, that is changing the way that our gut microbiome looks. It is affecting affecting every single thing in our body. And so that's why we are having this conversation. I want listeners to understand that as woo woo as it sounds, it all starts in the brain. And if you can't get a handle on how your brain is processing and how your brain is able to activate even the prefrontal cortex, which it can't, if you're in trauma state, if you're in fight or flight state, um, you, you have to be able to address these things. And if this is something that can lead you toward healing in any way, like this is absolutely something to look into. So um, one last question, Zach, for you, because oh, I yeah. could just, uh, now I'm all fired up. <laughs> but I'll ask you one last question. If you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? I, I think the biggest thing I tell clients is, and I know it sounds pretty cliche, but as much as you put into it is as much you get out of it. And I think that to spark the wholeness is that there's a level of vulnerability that it takes to become healthy, whether that's physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I see that with marriage couples. I see that with individuals. I see that with kids. And I think so often kind of you, you nailed it before there's that, that, shame that we have that, that, you know, I just, I can't get it. I can't do it. You know, that kind of thing. But I think that, you know, when I realize I have the ability and I can put my vulnerability um, as much into it and view myself as worth this. Um, I think that's where I start to see people really do some really powerful healing. Um, I think the other thing too, is if you see a therapist, I, I encourage like rather than wait till 10 sessions in, you know, that that person is trying to help you with, you know, the, you know, your stuff immediately. So I would, I'd encourage you if you go in, I know it's hard to talk to a, you know, a stranger, but you know, go in like, here I am, this is where I'm doing. So, um, I, one of the definitions I've been using a lot, Brene Brown, I know y'all have heard of her, but she uses a good definition of vulnerability. She says is it's emotional exposure, it's uncertainty and it's risk. And so she said, if you're vulnerable and she says that's key out of shame and guilt, then there has to be some level of emotional exposure. So that means that I have to be open with my emotions. It's uncertain because I don't know how that person is going to react or what they're going to say. And there's a big risk. But what she says, which I think is fascinating, is that any act of courage that we think of has that those same components in it. So for someone to be courageous, or if we were looking at that, like somebody jumps on a grenade for his buddies, you know, in the war and all that, it takes emotional exposure. It takes uncertainty. It takes risk. It takes, um, you know, courage. So I tell clients a lot of times when you come in that level of vulnerability, me asking for help, me, you know, wanting to, you know, you know, become whole, like it takes that level of vulnerability, but it also equates in my mind is courage. So I don't know if that helps, but that's kind of the way I've been describing it recently to a lot of clients and to myself as well. Yeah. That courage piece is huge. That's good because I think a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to talk to my spouse about doing this because it sounds weird, but take that step. It could make a complete difference in the, in the rest of your life. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. Where can people find more information about um, your counseling practice? 
Yeah, so we're called Solace Counseling and Anxiety Center, and we're located in Tyler, Texas. Um, there are six therapists with us, and we also have an intern center that, um, which basically is uh, basically the therapists who are trying working on hours to get their full licensure. Um, and so we have that. Um, our website is www.solacecounselingcenter.com. And you can look us up. It'll tell about our therapist. It'll show you pictures of a really awesome office that we have in Tyler. Um, our, um, we have, a, we have uh, Instagram, which is solace, S-O-L-A-C-E underscore counseling, underscore and underscore anxiety. And that's kind of, kind of gives you some um, daily kind of encouragements. Um, I also wanted to just kind of make a plug in February, we're actually going to be starting a podcast um, oh. and so on our website, you'll be able to find that. So at solacecounselingcenter.com, um, you'll be able to find that. And so it'll be our therapists interviewing each other and basically talking about hard and difficult things. We'll probably have a whole, you know, series on EMDR. We'll be talking nice. about anxiety. We'll be talking about gut health. We'll be talking about how yoga affects all that. Like we're, we're wanting to, um, just have another resource uh, for clients, you know, and for people just that are needing help. So that is awesome. February when we start that and that's coming out. So yay, that's exciting. Okay. Well, too bad. It's not February. I'd link that in the show notes too, but, um, yeah, thank you so much, Zach, for taking the time. Listeners don't know this, but we had some technical issues recording this, but we are going to wipe those out. And Zach is a trooper and I'm so glad I had technical issues with somebody that I know, <laughs> um, because you are very gracious in this whole process. So I appreciate that. I appreciate your patience. So yeah. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.